Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up, we'll talk about Smuckers and their development in the prepackaged food industry. We'll also talk about Del Taco's presentation at the latest consumer conference in New York and their new CEO. But first, we begin with Oath Craft Pizza, yet another player in the Fast Casual Pizza segment. This podcast is brought to you by Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. If you're tired of your coffee, never turning out like it does in the best coffee shops around you then check out third wave water they've got a patent pending formula that's going to take your coffee at home from good to fantastic use the promo code focus for 10 percent off your first order so as we mentioned a new business entering the fast casual pizza fray there are so many of these at this point it seems like we talk about a different one every week on the podcast but the reason we bring up Oathcraft pizza this week is that they have a new influx of capital that will enable potentially the massachusetts based startup to expand beyond just their massachusetts roots into other areas in the northeast and Leighton, they're a fairly recent business in terms of when they open Yeah, they first opened in November of 2015, so a very fresh startup. According to their website, their main mission is to create something that's honest and good and true and different. This is all under the pretense of doing good and doing something extraordinary are not mutually exclusive. From that, you can gather they are attempting to source sustainable toppings and take care of their employees. Really a positive spin if you look at it from a PR perspective, but the crust is made from a special process that includes avocado oil, and they say that their ingredients are all non-GMO. If you think back to another recent restaurant that has declared similar things, you think back to Chipotle, which recently has declared that all of their ingredients are non-GMO, some are organic and locally sourced as well. The fast casual pizza franchise is privately owned and currently operates those five locations, like you said, Trent, in the Massachusetts area, but they're looking to not only grow within that immediate area, but also along the rest of the East Coast. And you see recently, according to the QSR magazine, they reported at the end of last week that they've actually secured another round of funding worth around $7 million. This is their second round of funding, Series B, they call it. The latest round stems from nearby venture capital firm Breakaway Ventures, and we'll talk a little bit about them in a moment. But in total, the company will have raised $16 million since they first opened in that 2015 date. So you're looking at a company that really has been able to woo investors with their business plan and their current projections Given the proximity to the very well-educated and successful individuals in that Massachusetts community around the Boston area, it really isn't surprising they were able to get that additional funding. You see a lot of VC firms operating out of that general area, but it is unclear where the funding is in terms of if it's convertible notes, if it's going to be turned into equity, or if it's strictly a loan for the company Typically, with a lot of VC firms that do have a lot of faith in a particular investment or a company's management, you see them wanting to take an equity stake because all in all, if they were to grow to, let's say, a 100 or 200 unit franchise, they would want a bigger piece of the pie. But Trent, you look and see where these funds are going, and that is really the premise of this story because they reported that Oathcraft Pizza is looking to expand along the East Coast, like I said, throughout the D.C. and Fairfax County area, just to name two locations. The bigger question is, what is the long-term runway for this pizza franchise? And additionally, what does it cost to open this pizza franchise based out of the Northeast? They are, in addition to those two locations that Leighton mentioned, opening another Massachusetts location near MIT in the late summer of this year. So, Because they are a private company, we don't know exactly how much it costs to start up an Oathcraft pizza, but fortunately, we've got other operators in this same space that franchise out, so we have a pretty clear idea of a general ballpark estimate of how much it costs to open up these locations. So we're going to look at Pi 5 in this case, and 
Take this with a grain of salt because Pi5 has been struggling greatly, so they might be potentially cutting franchises a deal. But according to their franchise website, an average opening costs franchisees right around a half million dollars. As we mentioned, Oathcraft Pizza doesn't franchise out and they're not a publicly traded company, so we don't know exactly how much it costs to build each location, but we can also reduce the amount that a franchisee would have to pay in terms of franchise fees. Usually that's about 25 grand or so. And also this total that we speculate on doesn't include rent, does not include a potential deposit on a location. And keep in mind that a lot of areas that are renting to food operators are going to have leases anywhere between three and some as long as 20 years. So there is a little bit of an expense that's built in there, including rent. We can assume that it's right around maybe $550,000 to open a craft pizza, potentially a little bit more. And then, of course, you have the ingredients, which cost a little bit more to source. Layton mentioned avocado oil in the crust. That will cost a little bit more as well on the input. So assuming the company breaks even on operations by variable costs in the first year, the company can stand to open about 10 to 12 locations from the $7 million. At the low end, you're looking at maybe 7 to 10 locations from that $7 million. But if they do use all of that $7 million, they should be able to build out a pretty substantial store base. And then, who knows, from there, look at franchising after they've created a brand in the Northeast. And franchising is the method by which a lot of these other fast casual pizza chains have grown not only Pi 5, but Mod Pizza and Piology, all of them growing through aggressive franchising. Now, if we don't see that level of growth, if we don't see that 7 to 12 location level of growth, it would be reasonable for us then to assume that they are potentially struggling to keep pace and maybe the new locations aren't taking off as we first expected. Speaking of struggling, you know, Pi 5 for one has proven that not just anyone can hop into the fast casual pizza space and succeed over a given period of time. And other pizza joints have had trouble succeeding immediately. So Leighton, what are some of the differentiators that Oath is looking to other than the ingredients, other than the avocado oil and the crust to kind of set them apart and put them above and beyond the rest of the competition and what's now become a very crowded field, just like the fast casual burger segment. Differentiator is a key term here, and it's a term we use oftentimes on both of our podcasts, Trent. But for this particular franchise, it is a very important term because differentiation is what Pi 5 has failed to exploit. And we talked about that at the end of last year when we were discussing their falling same store sales, and you see them struggling into the first and second quarter this year. Even with new top executives at the helm, you see that Mod Pizza and Pizzeria Locale, which are both focused on their ingredients, have differentiated because of that. And their CEO, Patrick Hellstrand of Oathcraft Pizza, believes that they'll actually be succeeding because of their sustainably sourced food as well. He recently noted that the fact that they received the Humane Farm Animal Care's certified approval helps to ensure their brand and really relay the message to their customers that they do care about the ingredients and where they're coming from, and they hope to be even more transparent than their biggest competitors. So they're really trying to assure customers that ingredients are ethically sourced. Also, they mentioned that they have no chemicals, hormones, or antibiotics. And Trent, I know that I fit into the millennial class, but I think a lot of people outside of that class are now caring about what the ingredients are, where they are sourced, and how they are produced. And I think you see this in terms of the grocery retail sector too, with a lot of grocers, not just banking on the millennial generation, but also the generations outside of that, both older and younger generations. The small square footage also will be a key differentiator. As you see pictures on their website of their current locations, they operate those five locations. And you can see that they not only have a small amount of footprint, they also try to take advantage of some of the outside space. So they have outside seating, indoor seating, but overall, their general footprint on these street corners is fairly small. And 
This will help them in terms of minimizing overhead and general location risk. This is exactly something we talk about with Chipotle and how they are really trying to scour the landscape before ever trying to make an acquisition of property or sign a lease agreement. They want to make sure that they're going to be there for the long term, Trent. And you spoke of leases lasting up to 20 years. And this definitely is the case when you're looking at commercial real estate. A lot of landlords would like to see leasees in there for a long period of time. And this sentiment was echoed by the CEO of Breakaway Ventures, the VC firm that is going to supply them with that $7 million. Just overall, a really good concept. And if you're trying to reduce the overhead, the known fixed costs in the short term, you are going to see a succeeding business if you can get above and beyond those variable costs in terms of ingredients and your labor. Some pizzeria locale locations are larger. So as an example, their average unit volumes would have to be more in order to compete on the price point. So that is an important thing to mention here. As for Breakaway Ventures, you see that they are headquartered in Boston, as we mentioned, very close to Oathcraft Pizza. And their motto is, go where others won't. They have been investing in a lot of what they call brand capitalists rather than just being strict equity suppliers. They have a very large portfolio of partners that includes sectors in healthcare, footwear, athletic apparel. And looking through Trent, they have partnerships and equity deals with around 20 or so companies according to their website. But They only had one food company that really stuck out to me, and that was Unreal Candy. Unreal Candy is a candy company focused on, you guessed it, all natural ingredients. So they are no stranger to this space, especially with the sustainability of products. They are very aware of the space, and they're aware of the millennial consumer. I talked about the athletic apparel brands that they help to support, also those footwear companies. This is a company in Breakaway Adventures that knows the core customers, and some of the general overarching trends that are occurring in the restaurant industry. Well, we turn to a company largely in the prepackaged food industry as Smuckers reports their fourth quarter earnings at the end of last week. These earnings beat expectations as the company pivots to innovation and what they call operational efficiencies. Now, first, for a little company profile, a lot of our listeners probably know J.M. Smucker primarily for their sales of jam and sometimes peanut butter, but they carry other ubiquitous brands that span many grocery sub-segments. Most notably pet food and pet snacks. They handle licensing deals with brands like Dunkin'. So if you see Dunkin' Coffee in a retailer, in a grocery store, J.M. Smucker responsible for that. And then they have Jif Peanut Butter, Pillsbury is under their brand banner, Adams, Crisco, Hungry Jack Pancakes, Knott's Berry Farm, another jam holding for them, Folgers, the very familiar coffee brand, and a lot more from that. Recently, they've been adding through acquisition a number of smaller, all-natural, and organic brands. The company is coming up on their 116-year anniversary, and with that in mind, let's get to their results. Again, this is for their fiscal fourth quarter period ending April 30th, and the earnings beat came as profit did decline year over year. So they did beat expectations, but their profits still went down over the same quarter last year. Their adjusted earnings per share hit $1.80. Analysts were expecting around $1.72 per share. On a gap basis, though, their earnings per share hit just $0.96. So they were able to adjust it upward by around $0.84, both on a gap and adjusted basis, though earnings per share did decline year over year, even by double digits in terms of percentage with the gap earnings declining 40% and the non-gap earnings declining 19%. Top line sales also declined, but in this case, right around 1%. The company blamed less overall income actually from their pet food segment as consumer sentiment moves more towards natural foods. And we'll get to some of their natural endeavors at JM Smucker here in just a moment. Their sales came in at $1.78 billion, down from $1.8 billion 
in fiscal year 2016. In the company's official investor relations press release, they did acknowledge a shifting consumer landscape and said that they are attempting to change in order to capitalize on the new consumer. And Leighton, I think this is notable because this is a constant theme, not only in this conference call, but also in their annual report and some of their presentations of recent. They certainly did acknowledge the shifting consumer landscape, Trent. Interesting to both you and I reading through the conference call notes was the fact that they failed to recognize the growing market in terms of the all-natural and organic segments from several quarters ago. They would mention things about some areas in the overall consumer landscape that were changing, but not really as it relates to their product mix. And here you see a lot more talk about it, which is good if you're a current shareholder what a lot of other increased players in this space have recognized is the fact that they can both leverage their brand and some new organic and all-natural offerings with their current product mix. You do see some positive signs as they did see pricing increases in some consumer brands that are relative to the food industry. And then you see, however, they had to reduce some prices in their pet segment. Trent, you mentioned that they do have some pet snacks in their general portfolio. Milk Bone, Kibbles and Bits, and Pepperoni are just three that our listeners may be aware of. This pet segment price reduction was said to be partially offset by those increases in those food categories, which to us was surprising because you're seeing both of these industries really increasing. We had mentioned about two weeks ago that general GDP growth is around 2%. If you compare that to pet sales in the United States that are seeing about 4% increase over 2016, you see an area that's more of an opportunity, not a liability. And so if you look at how these sales have affected some of their ratios, you see that their total debt level is about the same. So because of those falling earnings, in general, they are leveraged about the same as they were last year. However, what was surprising to me, Trent, was because of these falling operations, free cash flow was actually down nearly $90 million over fiscal year 2016 in the fourth quarter. So a lot of interesting things. If you dig a little further into the conference call, you can see that they are trying to change up some things in order to address their massive competition coming in. And you spoke of their entry into the coffee market, not only with licensing, but their old legacy brands such as Folgers and others. Speaking of coffee, they have introduced K-Cups for their changing consumer, and they mentioned the speed of implementation with their Dunkin' Donuts K-Cups. And as one can imagine, the company is seeing preferences changing to the all-natural blends of coffee. They recently launched the Nature's Recipe brand extension to try to capitalize on this trend. Another thing that they mentioned was the idea that they can leverage their brands with the all-natural selections, but they said this won't be enough because the current consumer does not really care about the brand name. They said older generations of their current consumer base would be very aware of strong brands and no matter what the ingredients would be led to the brand that had the most appeal on the shelf. However, they said this is no longer the case. And this is interesting because they really haven't tried to adjust their own brands. And in fact, I used to be a GIF customer having that as my number one peanut butter. But recently, Skippy had come out with an all-natural version. And this is something that the company had failed to address for a number of years. They now have an all-natural option. But I have to say, I feel like this is a little bit too late for a company that is so large. You're talking about a company that brings in billions of dollars in revenue and they have all the analytics on their side and here during this conference call they're just now starting to talk about claiming certain customer insights and analytics to better address the change in what they call consumer lives and so i think right now as it turns out they can really use a lot of increased capital to some of these newer programs that are focused on the organic and all natural segments that they deal with it was kind of bizarre, not only listening to this earnings call, but looking at some of their latest investor presentations, noting that they have to change to keep up with the consumer and they're adding more natural options to their product line. But it seems as though they missed the boat on some of their products. Now, Smuckers, for example, has come out with all natural jams or fruit forward jams a little bit. They have some different branding on certain jams to make them at least appear a little bit more all natural. But the reality of it is there's a lot of brands that have been left behind. You talk about the pet brands, Milk 
backbone, kibbles and bits. As we look at a company like Blue, for example, that sells pet food, all natural pet food, you see their sales increasing. And you mentioned that pet sales are increasing greater than GDP is increasing. And overall, you note that the pet industry is pretty strong, except apparently for these brands. And part of it is that customers are moving more towards all natural products. Part of it is that they just aren't wooed quite as much by these brand names. But during their latest large presentation in New York back in February, they did note that still 93% of households have one of their products somewhere in their house so this is important and they need to make this change as soon as possible something that they underscored over and over again they acknowledge how the consumer of today needs instant gratification and so time is very important in terms of churning out those k-cups in terms of churning out new product extensions but they didn't exactly address how they would look to tweak things and change their portfolio overall based on this consumer tendency. However, on the positive side of things, they did mention large capital improvements in their production processes. A new Uncrustables facility will be opened in 2020 that will increase production of Uncrustables by 100%, or at least it will have that capacity. And again, Uncrustables is a product where you look to as maybe potentially falling sales in the future because your inputs in terms of peanut butter, in terms of jelly, in terms of, say, white bread are things that overall aren't as in demand as they once were. They're seeing coffee facility improvements as well in their Louisiana plant, so that'll help with some of their brand extensions and also their Folgers brand, a new peanut butter plant in Lexington, for example. And they're doing all of this while trying to focus on other costs they feel like they can control. They want to create $450 million in annual savings by 2020. That is no small feat. With this saved money, they could be looking to buy up smaller competing firms, especially those in the all natural and organic food segment and they've grown through acquisition already very small firms you're not going to see anything where smuckers is going to approach a larger firm about a larger brand but it's probably going to be firms that are relatively new or emerging as their management said future merger and acquisition activity was probable now what about shares they've slipped about two percent since they reported on thursday of last week this despite that earnings beat but investors did not like what they had to say on the conference call as a whole. Their stock ticker SJM is currently trading around $127 a share from about $130 per share. It's down a little bit at a time when the market as a whole has been up over the last couple of days. Their price to earnings ratio is still slightly growth centric, sitting at 22. So it indicates that the market feels like there is some growth to be realized from Smuckers. A $14.65 billion market cap. They do also offer a dividend as a bonus to investors with a current yield right around 2.5%. This episode of the Food Focus Podcast is brought to you by Third Wave Water. Do you ever wonder why the coffee you make at home never quite tastes as good as the coffee you buy at a coffee shop? Well, let me let you in on a secret coffee shop spent thousands of dollars to make the perfect water for making coffee and now for as little as 10 cents per cup you can duplicate that fantastic magic at home yeah that's right trent third wave water does have a patent pending formula of minerals that when added to a gallon of distilled water makes for coffee brewing magic recently at the u.s brewers cup championship both the first and second place finishers there brewed their coffee with third wave water i brewed my coffee this morning with it check out their website at thirdwavewater.com and use the promo code focus for 10 percent off your first order and one other cool thing i know we have a lot of grocers a lot of food operators in our listening audience check out their website as well for wholesale they do wholesale to grocers and sellers of fine foods everywhere they've got great deals on that front check them out again thirdwavewater.com well we move on to the third story for the food focus as del taco presented at the 37th annual piper jaffray consumer conference on tuesday morning of this week this was their first presentation after they named a new ceo first let's talk about the new ceo 
Last week, they named John D. Capasola Jr. as their new CEO. He's been with the company since 2008. He replaced the outgoing Paul Murphy III as both the CEO and on the board of directors. Now, Murphy is sticking around through July to assist Capasola in the transition. In the official release, they note that Murphy is relocating permanently to Denver, Colorado on July 7th, and at that point, he will fully resign. Now, during this presentation at the Piper Jaffray Conference, Capasola did mention that he's worked with Murphy a lot. Murphy is going back to Denver. Family reasons, more or less, that's where he's initially from, and he's looking to reset his roots there. Capasola, as far as he's concerned, said it was a little bit bittersweet because he considers himself very close with Murphy. At the same time, investors like the fact that the CEO, the new CEO, has ample experience with the company. He's been their chief brand officer since February 2011 and their president since this January. And according to the release, he's actually led Del Taco's efforts around brand strategy, operations, marketing, and menu development for the last six years or so. These are all areas of strength for Del Taco. We've complimented their innovation in the past. We'll talk a little bit more about innovation coming up. What excited Capasola originally about Del Taco when he came over in 2011 was he saw an opportunity in the marketplace referencing the QSR Plus concept. Fast, casual, quality food, but with a drive-through giving some optionality to the consumer. And as far as stock impacts of this change, the stock started at 1285 before the official release on June 8th. It's since peaked at around $14 per share on Tuesday, June 13th. This is a pop of over 8%, but it was gradually occurring. So gradually the stock has gone up. The stock on the whole for the year is down just slightly from 1432 in January to right around $14 here today. But up on the 52-week chart, when you look 52 weeks ago, the stock was under $10. Capasola was one of the presenters at this particular Piper Jaffray Consumer Conference. He presented alongside their CFO, Stephen L. Brake, and Leighton, they had a lot of interesting things to say that went above and beyond the kind of typical navel-gazing that you'll get at these conferences. Absolutely, and with his growth background, you can certainly see the company is headed in the right direction. Since Capasola has actually joined Del Taco in 2008, you can see that the company really has made some important strategic changes. And I think that's why you have and see the support there with their chairman of the board, Lawrence Levy, saying that this really is the forward evolution in his natural leadership role. So they were trying to groom him to take over at the helm eventually. I don't know if this was a little bit too soon as far as what they were preparing for, but overall you can see this is a great fit. Even in the company's own remarks, you can see that they're different from what they were about five years ago, saying that Del Taco's menu items taste much better because they're now made with quality ingredients and fresh ingredients. And I think that is something that the company has tried to emphasize both on social media and other marketing platforms. And because of this, because of this influx of traffic, because of their increased brand awareness, they have been getting more guests to their individual locations as they now have over 550 restaurants across 15 different states. That makes them the number two largest Mexican-American QSR chain by the number of units in the United States. So a lot of changes happening. And within that presentation, Trent, you see that there is a strong demand for their current product mix, but they're not entirely set on offering what they've been offering. They say the growth and success of Del Taco over the past really is a testament to their strength of their business model. But part of the reason they got here is because of how they've evolved. And so they are looking to continue evolving over time, and they're wanting to accelerate their mid-single-digit unit growth in the next fiscal year and discussed how they'll do this with a number of larger programs they unveiled at the conference. They're looking at a franchisee incentive program, Trent. They see a lot of franchisee demand in their existing markets, and this is going to happen anytime you have increased average volumes at these locations. The program incentive, which will provide discounts to franchisees over the first few years of their ownership in a new market up to three years, is designed to spread the brand. And this is interesting because you see a lot of franchisees get stuck on one particular market, and you see this with refranchising efforts and other QSRs as of late. A lot of franchisees are hesitant to go 
from state to state. They like a particular market. They want to stay in that particular market. But with this incentive plan, they hope to boost brand awareness by having more units inside the United States. They see the largest runway for growth in the Southeast, in fact, with a current strong group in Atlanta. Franchisees operate an average of three restaurants currently, with their largest current franchisees owning around 30-plus. They want this number to go up gradually as they see more multi-unit operators. Again, something Del Taco had actually discussed about six months ago, Trent. We discussed their operations on the coast, and you see that they're really bullish on the idea of franchisee support. So very open to the idea of franchisees owning more than three restaurants, which is more than the average. They say they want a sweet spot for them in development agreements, which is five to ten locations per franchisee. You look at this logically, Trent, and this is more of a manageable unit count. If you're a franchisee, you really would find it hard to operate over 100 because you would have to have support groups that are then under you. You have to operate your own CFO, your own COO, and things of that nature. They see larger groups more as buyers, not builders, and they want builders for their franchise. And that's part of the reason why they see the 5 to 10 restaurant group as a strong point because, again, not necessarily that they need super hands-on franchisees, but they say that franchisees that hold a few fewer stores than the mega franchisees you might have for McDonald's and Wendy's seem to understand the operations of the stores a little bit better. Overall, they've also seen potential returns for franchisees on a percentage of overall revenue basis being around the high teens in terms of revenue, depending, of course, on rents and wages. But they use California as a basis for this. And of course, wages a little bit higher than California than they would be in, say, the American Southeast. They see this as a motivator for potential franchisees. Some of the other stuff that they talked about at the conference had to do with this QSR plus positioning in the marketplace. And what they want to do going forward is really send out the message to consumers regarding their fresh preparation. They mentioned that not every QSR has a preparation kitchen. A lot of QSRs, of course, get things pre-made where everything is handmade that day in Del Taco, very similar to how it would be in a Chipotle, in a Qdoba, someone in the fast casual segment. And that's why a lot of their new store locations have these fresh prep areas either visible or they have these fresh cases in the front of the store so that customers coming in can see that basically these ingredients have come in, they're fresh and they're ready to be made into their meal. Just about everything is done in-house rather than just doing the point of sale prep and the assembly in-house. And they mentioned that they've been doing a lot of this fresh prep, pinto beans especially for their refried beans, now for 53 years. It's just a matter of finding better ways, more economical ways of doing this, and also telling the customer about the fact that everything is prepped fresh. Regarding their marketing going forward, they're trying to push this fresh message by looking at geo-targeting through digital advertising by zip code to keep costs down because they said there's no need to advertise nationally just yet as they don't have a lot of positions in the upper Midwest outside of a few locations around Michigan. They don't really have anything in the Northeast, so they want to keep advertising dollars down. They want to keep advertising dollars regional, and Capasola actually has a background in marketing, so that helps as well. Capasola also, during this presentation, discussed something called Combined Solutions, which was their brand re-imaging that they underwent in 2013. Talked about continuing that process, but tweaking it because now a lot of the major changes have been made. Originally, before they started this re-imaging, on this consumer data they were getting, they found that they were right around McDonald's and Taco Bell in terms of perceived quality and perceived value. Now, in their own data, they rank much higher than those two operators. And over the last five years, they've been able to position themselves as an operator that connotes quality and value both 
to the consumer, and it was asked at the conference how they fit in with some of the FSRs and fast casual restaurants on the upper end, and they mentioned that they don't see the traditional two for 20 deals for dinner at an FSR operator like Applebee's Chili's to be consistently affordable to what they call their main street consumer, and that's where their value comes into play. And that's something they mentioned quite a bit at the conference is the value proposition for the consumer. In fact, they noted both Brake and Capasola did that basically they would not exist without some sort of a value proposition for the consumer. And this is something that differentiates them from a lot of people in this QSR Plus space and certainly those in the fast casual space. You don't see a lot of value menus. You don't see the middle of plate items being as inexpensive as what they are at a Del Taco at a QSR Plus or at a fast casual restaurant. And this is something, the value portion of it, they talked about extensively and is pretty unique to Del Taco. And how they see that value portion going forward is important. Their chief financial officer, Stephen L. Brake, said that they have what they call the barbell menu, which is 14 items for $1 or less. Most are the center of plate items. And then Many items are at a higher price point also. So this is that key differentiator trend that you alluded to. Usually these items are between $4 and $7, some of course being meals. They mentioned the 1 in 10 transactions are fully $1 and under on their menu. They feel like these are being used as more add-on items to higher dollar items. And those innovative products for them tend to be at that mid to high price point. Of course, this is going to happen because a lot of those innovations come around a meal deal. Uh, speaking of innovation, the endeavor with innovation is an attempt to train their consumer away from strictly value, however, getting them to try to place higher price point item orders. And this mix has enabled average tech to rise 4 to 5% over the last two years. So not only can you combine that with the traffic increases, you see how same-store sales have been going up between the two. So it really creates for a positive dynamic in these individual stores, something these franchisees are excited about. The innovation has also enabled them to drive up margins. For example, they can charge 6 to $7 for their Platos, and those are high margin items. Something they are looking at when they have to report earnings is the margins on individual items and then also the margins on a per store basis. One of the most interesting things is that they are trying and seeking to optimize back of house operations. And you had alluded to this, Trent, also in the fact of how they're trying to prep their fresh foods. But not only adding equipment to improve consistency, quality, and speed, but also removing equipment that they deem unnecessary. Different, certainly, from most QSRs who just add and keep adding certain equipment when they add different items, Burger King comes to mind with all of their food innovations and food extensions over the last several decades. In fact, they mentioned adding bean mixers to their pinto beans, which you had mentioned, to become refried beans. This frees up staff about 30 minutes in terms of labor costs while creating consistency in the back room. One big note, currently they are beta testing an app. They want the app to make things a little bit more efficient and drive consumer loyalty. And this is interesting because not only does it make it easier for customers to place orders, as you see with Domino's and them trying to always have a new iteration of their app, constantly making improvements, but it does drive loyalty, not loyalty in the sense of, oh, I love this place, but loyalty in the fact that if it takes consumers less time to make an order, if they have less wait times overall, they will tend to have that in the frame of mind. In the frame of reference, personally, if you want something in a quick fashion, you just want to get in and get out. And they're also looking at delivery, perhaps even through delivery service providers and perhaps directly through the app and store locations themselves. They want to clearly understand the demand of their customer. And you can see this, obviously, I mentioned a lot of QSRs throughout this article, but McDonald's definitely comes to mind in terms of piloting these types of programs. McDonald's is piloting their delivery program in several Florida counties, and you see it be fairly successful through the comments of their executives. So other QSRs, and especially these bigger ones who have the capital to put in place, will certainly be looking forward to implement those programs in the future. Well, soda tax is in the news again as Seattle has approved a steep measure after some hearty debate among local business leaders and council members. 
The vote ultimately was passed last week via a 7-to-1 tally. The soda tax was voted on Monday of last week. The passing means there'll be a 1 cent or 1.75 cent tax per fluid ounce on local distributors in the area, not on the end businesses such as the retail grocery stores or restaurants that we've been talking about. Similar to other measures in cities that we've mentioned in the past, such as Berkeley and Philadelphia, is this tax implementation. And Trent, the details of the tax are pretty straightforward. However, there has been some pushback from distributors and local vendors. When you compare it to the other cities that have enacted a soda tax, you notice that the tax is much more substantial. You have anywhere between a cent and a cent and a half per ounce in the other cities. This is a cent and three quarters, so this is much more of a tax than it is in Berkeley or Philadelphia. So you see about 21 cents of a tax per 12 ounce can of soda. What differentiates this tax, though, is that it will be on any beverage that is sweetened with sugar or high fructose corn syrup. If you want to get technicals, sports drinks, soda, iced teas, flavored coffees, non-100% fruit juices, and so forth. Uh, One of the operators that we don't often think about when it comes to a soda tax would be Ocean Spray. They have a line of non-100% cranberry juices that have a significant amount of sugar in them, and they, at least as we read this legislation, would be subject to that tax. Now, there are minor exceptions, as is the case with any legislation. For example, tax will not be issued on anything for medical use, so something like cough syrup will still be able to use sugar. Meal replacement items, things like Ensure, still clear there. Milk-based beverages, so chocolate milk, for example, that does have a substantial amount of sugar in it, will not be taxed, or anything with less than 40 calories in 12 fluid ounces. So this means a beverage like the low-calorie iteration of Gatorade, which is right around 40 calories in a serving, could be exempt from this. Diet sodas apparently will also be exempt. It will be interesting long-term now that we're getting more and more cities enacting this soda tax to see if this all results in a boost in beverages sweetened either with apple concentrate to make the 100% juice requirement or potentially with stevia has fewer calories per serving. Now, in terms of the negative response, the pushback, you know you're going to get it from grocers. You know you're certainly going to get it from distributors. Distributors probably the worst hit because they can't benefit like the grocers can from substitute goods, at least in all circumstances. Even though they're not going to be directly taxed, though local businesses, convenience stores, retailers aren't particularly happy because they do know the cost of certain beverages and, of course, the syrups for fountain drinks will eventually go up as there is increased expense passed on. Some argue that the very communities, so these low-income communities that the tax is meant to help will only hurt those with low income, but... We also see data, at least preliminary data from Berkeley, that suggests that a lot of low-income families are actually going away from soda rather than blowing a lot of money on soda and finding substitute goods that are, in theory, a little bit more healthy. The idea is to keep people in low-income neighborhoods and low-income areas that do consume a heavy amount of soda away from those products and kind of legislate health a little bit, if you will, while also raising money for public health programs. And Leighton, a number of other cities now have tried this. We've had differing results. We get word out of Philadelphia that people are going to be laid off because of this, but really the actual objective data that we have from Berkeley's soda tax looks quite positive in terms of getting the result that these lawmakers want. Yeah, we spoke about the health effects on society. And while you and I, Trent, are not doctors, this is supported by the doctors and health organizations such as American Heart Association. And they support these types of taxes in these local communities. But there is a little bit of a different look when you go to the business side of things. And in Philadelphia, Trent, you mentioned The effects in that particular market, supermarkets and distributors are reporting a 30 to 50% drop in average beverage sales. And they said they're actually planning for layoffs. They said that in the early spring months. And you see that they're looking to cut around 20% of its workforce. It's unclear if they actually shed that amount of jobs. But I think that's just one way for those business leaders to say, look, we are seeing decreased sales. This is a real thing, but you mentioned, and very smartly so, the idea of substitute goods. 
Who's to say they're not in turn buying water or drinks that are not affected by this soda tax? We mentioned several drinks that would not fit into this particular category, particularly ones that have a medical label. And then you think about bottled water, which has a huge presence in the United States. And several of my friends are actually naturally switching from soda and sugary sports drinks to water and other flavored waters that would not be included in these taxations. But overall, society is changing. This is really just a way to make these particular areas transition a little more quickly than they might otherwise do. And you look at the effects on the medical industry and seeing that expenditures are decreasing. So the study in Berkeley said they might. And I think overall, you have to look at the implications on not just the businesses, but on the health of the general population as well. And I think that's where the interesting dynamic is. And I think that's one of the reasons why we keep talking about the implementation of these soda taxes as they are really spreading throughout the United States. Seattle is just a number of cities now that has implemented that. And if you look at the effects on the business community, because obviously the tax has to go somewhere. So they're losing money, but the city is then gaining money. And According to Seattle's council, they said they are looking to really transfer that money into other programs that are related to food. So you talk about substitute goods. Perhaps the soda tax can go to the SNAP program, which is what they're recommending, and therefore boost produce sales in the local areas. And they're trying to do this to have families eat more healthy food. And then also other programs throughout the city, such as educational programs that help people be a little more aware of what they're eating and where it's coming from. So I think all of these things really are a good setup for a healthy future, but it's just one of those things where you have to take a step back and understand that things take time. Things take time to not only get implemented, but there's a transitionary period for how people are adjusting, how businesses are adjusting. But I think in the end, everyone will be fine. And considering that Seattle is one of the highest costs of living in the nation, if you take it on a little bit more of a macro level, the soda tax really is more of a drop in the bucket when you compare it to the ordinary costs of just having to live in Seattle, shop for groceries there in an area where it's more expensive. Gasoline is more expensive because of the northwesterly location there as well. So overall, I would urge a little bit of caution before coming down on one side or the other as it's going to take several years of longitudinal data to discover the exact impact and implication of these soda taxes. Well, we've reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast, a segment we call What We Ate, where each Leighton and I talk about something that we tried over the last week that's new to the world of food, or at least new to us. And this time, all begin a little bit unique in that I'll start this segment. I went to a local Chili's. I was invited there by some friends lately, and a friend of mine ordered their new Smokehouse Combo. Now, the Smokehouse Combo has baby back ribs, roasted sweet corn, homestyle fries, all of that, and it's also got a couple of new items. Jalapeno cheddar smoked sausage, which was okay. I did try some of that. But I was most anxious to try the smoked bone-in barbecue chicken breast that they have. It is barbecue glazed and then served with a side of barbecue sauce. It's part of their new Smokehouse program. Very similar, although not quite exactly like the wood-fired grill that Applebee's rolled out a few years ago. And then here we're talking about smoking rather than an actual wood-fired grill. In this circumstance, I found the chicken breast, it was okay in terms of quality, maybe not worth the overall price of the combo. It wasn't as dry as I figured something would be from a Chili's, but I can tell you that the sodium content was very high. They don't have specific nutrition information on just the chicken breast in and of itself, but the barbecue sauce had a lot of salt in it, and overall I found myself drinking a lot of water afterward. Now, the price point for this smokehouse combo was right around $18 overall, and it does vary by zip code. You can search on the Chili's website and select the location to find out exactly how much this smokehouse combo would cost, and their website does have some pretty good optionality to it in terms of picking out a certain market but this smokehouse combo cost about $16 it was a lot of food I think it's enough food probably for two people to consume at this price point though I think I would rather go to a local smokehouse or barbecue joint for my bone-in chicken 
So for my story, I have not gone to a restaurant other than Chipotle over the past two weeks, so I cannot lie to my listeners and say that I tried something new. However, I did try a new snack at home. It was the Simple Mills chocolate chip cookies. And if anybody knows me personally, at my job, I really don't do much, but I'm sitting there and I'm really craving chocolate chip cookies. So the first thing I do, oddly enough, is I Google images of chocolate chip cookies and one really catches my eye. It's sort of a Chips Ahoy variation. It's from Simple Mills, and it's a non-GMO, gluten-free product. And the price point is really what ended up catching my eye. Not only were the images catching my eye, but also the fact that a whole pack of these, which again is equivalent in both size and portion to Chips Ahoy, was around $4.49. And that's where I bought it from at that price point. You can see the ingredients really are pretty interesting. You see the flour blend that they use is actually a mixture of almonds, coconut, and tiger nuts with tapioca. And then you see that as far as the oils, they're not conventional oils. You see them using coconut oil and then all natural chocolate chips also. So I think there's a lot of good things within this cookie and I think that's why it tasted so good. I have to say I love Chips Ahoy, but ever since I started eating gluten-free and trying to be more all natural and organic, Things like this really have impressed me with the type of flavor offering they're giving me. And I think overall, the brand is strong too. You see them also extending off into other variations. They actually have pecan cookies, cinnamon cookies, and other things that I got to be honest, Trent, I'm probably going to be trying in the future. As for their nutrition facts, just going over quickly, you see that a serving size is about three of these cookies. Again, in a very close proximity to the size of a Chips Ahoy cookie. But you see calories with those three cookies. It's around 127 grams of fat because of that chocolate, obviously. And saturated fat coming in at 4.5 grams. Overall, a very good cookie that is certified gluten-free, certified kosher, non-GMO. They're in the project verified section of the non-GMO banner. And they also are a respectable brand in that they say that they're extremely transparent with their product distribution and their manufacturing. So trend a very good product for me this week. And I plan on visiting a restaurant hopefully in the next week. So on that edition of the Food Focus, I can look ahead towards a new meal that I tried. Visiting a restaurant may be preferable to Googling images of chocolate chip cookies while one is at work. Well, that'll do it for this version of the Food Focus podcast for Layton. I'm Trent. Again, big thanks to Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com for sponsoring this episode. Coming up later this week on Retail Focus, we'll take a look at Kroger's earnings and see if we can gauge which way food inflation or deflation is heading over the next few months. So it's an episode that will tie in certainly to a lot of those that listen to the Food Focus podcast. Also check out our YouTube page. Just search Retail Focus on YouTube where we put video shorts at the beginning of the week analyzing retail and food goings on. Again, so long until next week. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 